Psalm chapter 127. If you would go ahead and turn there, and uh, we're continuing in the series called Psalms Playlist. This is our third week in the series. We're going to take it up to about the holidays or so, about seven weeks. So we're not covering the entire book of Psalms, but we will hit a few of the ones. I guess I'll just go selfishly say are on my prayer li- or on my uh, playlist, right? So anytime you have a playlist on your device, you've got certain songs. Every song that's ever been written is not on your playlist. Just the ones that mean a little something to you for whatever reason. Well, this series. We're pulling out a few of these Psalms. Psalms is actually the largest book in the Bible. If you're counting chapters, it's the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. No other book in Scripture even comes really close to that specifically. If you're counting words like Matthew would, which most of the rest of us don't, it's the third largest book of the the Bible. So I think it's safe to say it's the biggest one in here. It's going to cover the most amount of space. If you turn to the middle of your Bible, there's a good chance you're going to land somewhere in the book of Psalms. And if not, you're going to be really, really close. It's the book of the, Old, of the Old Testament that Jesus quoted from the most. More than any other Old Testament book, Jesus quoted from the book of Psalms. He quoted from Psalms when he stood over the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over that city before he would enter and eventually give his life on the cross. He quoted from Psalms. From the cross, he would quote from Psalms, Psalms chapter 22. He would quote from Psalms with his disciples. When he would refer to coming back again, he would quote from the book of Psalms. Numerous times, Jesus would quote from this book more than any other book in the Old Testament. And I think that in itself teaches us something that for Jesus, there was significance in the book of Psalms. It teaches us a broad range of who God is, of the qualities and the characteristics of who God is. I would even say, and I think I said this recently, that if if we wanted to turn to one book of Scripture that teaches us about who God is more than any other, probably the book of Psalms is going to do it. There are rich books, right? Romans being probably one of the biggest, but Psalms hit so many of the mountain peaks of the quality and the characteristics of who God is. Maybe that's why Jesus quoted from there so often. So today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 127, looking at a message that I've entitled All In, All In. So I'll put together a few visuals of what it looks like to be all in. We use that phrase fairly often, and I think most of us know what the phrase means, but I thought it'd be helpful to give a visual or two or three of what it looks like to be all in. This is a picture of a man named Tim Lee. Tim Lee is an evangelist now. Uh, Back in his earlier life, he was a Vietnam veteran. Lost two legs during his service there in Vietnam, would eventually, ultimately go into ministry, travels the country, many ways travels the world, I suppose, still today to share the message of the gospel. I think there would be many, 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 many men and women similar to him in their service to our country, that when you look at them and when you look at him specifically, you would say, this is an individual as it comes to serving our nation who was all in. During our coronavirus uh, uh, challenge in the early days, I know it's still lingering and still very much present, but you had a group of medical workers, nurses, and doctors just like these, who back in the day before there was a vaccine, who were on the front lines of serving their communities and their neighbors and their friends and total strangers at the risk of their own life. And uh, back in 2020 specifically, we did not have a vaccine and nobody knew exactly what exposure may do to any given person without that vaccine. And yet it was men and women just like this, many of whom are represented even in this group, who would gladly step to the front lines and they did. And they risked their very lives to carry out the profession that they had embraced years before. Most would look at a group like that and say, they are all in. Right here close to our church, just 10 minutes from here is a Coast Guard station. 
Part of what the Coast Guard does is to ultimately rescue those who are in distress out on the open water. Here's a picture of a Coast Guard, a couple of Coast Guard rescue swimmers. Uh, it would take a lot for me to do that particular thing right there, and I think for a lot of you, you're the same. But we look at a picture like this, and we, we, we would say that for those who are serving our Coast Guard who are doing this, right, that person has to be all in. There's no middle ground there. There's no half in, half out. In all three of those visuals, there's a picture of having to make a decision to say, I'm going to step from this area to this area, and I'm going to go all in. So what does it mean to be all in? It means to be fully devoted. It means to be, in some ways, recklessly abandoned. It means that we never look back again. And where we understand what it means to be all in as it relates to some of our pursuits, right? We know what it's like. Some of you know what it's like to be all in as it relates to your career, because you are. You're working from sunup to sundown, and you're you're grinding and you're getting after it and you're doing what you need to be able to build your career. Why? Because you are all in. You know what that means. Some of you, in regards to pursuits in your life, certain hobbies or certain passions you've got, you've spent a lot of money to feed that. You've spent a lot of time to feed that. You would say you are all in. Others of you, maybe in an athletic sense or in an academic sense, you understand what it means to be all in. Here's my question. Have we ever really paused to think about what it looks like to be all in as it relates to our relationship with Jesus? Have we ever taken a moment to step back from career, to step back from pursuits, to step back from those things that are important to us, and to really truly ask ourselves, what does it look like to be all in as it relates to my relationship with Jesus? And is he comfortable with being partly in, half in, three quarters in, or does he require me to be all in as well? Psalm 127, I think, speaks to that in a very interesting way and in somewhat of a creative way. <clears throat> it seems to be giving us one message, but I think underlying what we read here in this short psalm is going to be a simple theme of what it looks like ultimately to be all in in our lives. And so let's go ahead and jump in here this morning. Psalm 127, we're going to read all five verses. Still plan to get you out of here on time, right? And uh, we're going to cover these verses. I'm going to make some commentary along the way and then try to tie together the loose ends by the, time, by the time we're done. So let's jump in. Psalm 127, let's begin in verse 1. You can read it on the uh, screen behind me. If you've got a copy of Scripture, you can follow in your translation. If you don't have a copy, we've got plenty of them out in the lobby. We'd be excited to give you, give you one for yourself. So let's jump in. Psalm 127, beginning in verse 1. So it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. There are two themes here. You can see them there. I've highlighted them, builds and guards. There, there are two themes that are being built with. There's the theme of building a house, and there's the theme of guarding a city. And I think here, when Solomon wrote this particular psalm, you can see it there, maybe in the heading before we ever get to verse 1. Solomon is the human author. Of course, God wrote it through him. This particular psalm is talking about houses and cities, but I don't think that's the primary message. I don't think God is trying to teach us, hey, the next time you build a shed or a, or a house or anything like that, be sure that, that uh, you come to Psalm 127 to get your building plans. I don't think that's what he's saying primarily. I don't think he's saying, hey, the next time that you are in a place where you have to stay in guard over your neighborhood or over your city, and the way things are going nowadays, who knows, that, may they, that they may come. The next time you have to do that, just be sure you go to Psalm 127 because it's going to teach you how to do that. I don't think Psalm 127 is talking so much about house building and city guarding as much as it is talking about family 
and our own commitment and devotion and surrender to the person of Jesus. I think that's the primary impetus behind Psalm chapter 127. And here's a key verse or a key word there, this verse, verse number one, is the word unless. You'll notice there that it happens twice. I've highlighted it two times, the word unless. That word unless is a hinge word. It's a word that is incredibly important because everything in a lot of ways in this verse and even in this in entire psalm hinges on that word unless. It is an incredibly important word. Well, what does a hinge do? If unless is a hinge word, what does a hinge do? Well, think about a hinge on a door. That hinge is what allows that door to either go in or out. I mean, it, it has to be there. Otherwise, you, if you don't have a hinge, you've got just a clunky bl block of wood there that may have a decorative design to it, but it's really not useful. That hinge is the all-important component that determines which way that door is going to swing. We have certain things in our lives where when we use this word unless, it serves the purpose of a hinge. For example, tonight is Halloween, right? Some of you got kids that are ready to go Halloween, trick-or-treating tonight. Maybe they did it last night too, and they're going to double dip, go to a different neighborhood tonight. <clears throat> But when you think about it, those kids are going to want to go trick-or-treating. And you may roll this out there as a parent. You're going to say, hey, unless, you're hard-nosed as a parent if you say this, but still, I'm going this route. Unless you clean your room, you are not going trick-or-treating tonight. That's a hard-nosed mom or dad right there, right? That word unless is important. Unless it is a hinge. You are not going trick-or-treating tonight in this neighborhood and coming home, hopefully not with salad and uh, payday bars. You're going to come home with Skittles and Snickers and all the other good stuff. But you're not going to do that unless, there's the hinge, you get your room clean. That word unless, it's a hinge. It, 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 it's what connects what we hope to experience one day and it links that to our decision. Some of you are thinking about retirement and, and you've used that same terminology. Hey, unless I save enough money, I'm not gonna be able to retire. Hey, I wanna retire, I hope to retire one day, but there's a hinge there that's gotta take place. If I don't save enough money ahead of time, I'm not gonna be able to retire well. You already think about that. That word unless is all important. Here's what God is saying here. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city. And again, he's not talking about houses. He's not talking about cities, but it is an analogy. And it's like he's saying, listen, you can build a house with 20 rooms and a gymnasium, a workout room and a media room and 10 baths and one of those fancy faucets that fills your pots and pans right there over the stove, right? You can have all of that in place and everything look perfect in the well-manicured lawn, but unless the Lord builds that house, you just wasted your time. That's what this passage is saying. He says, you can take the most finely trained army and the most advanced weaponry, and you can sit out in front of your city, and you can have every component that our nation can afford as it relates to military, and you can guard your city. But what he's saying here is, unless the Lord is the one who's doing it, you have just wasted all that expense and all that time and all that effort. And again, he's not talking about building houses and guarding cities here. He's talking about the life that we live, and it's a picture. How do we, how do we ultimately have a life that, ulti that, that, uh, that, that hits the bullseye and that pleases God and that fulfills his purpose for us. It only happens when he builds it, unless he builds it, unless he is first, unless he is in the center. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus paints this picture of somewhat of a hierarchy. He says to 
for us to uh, ultimately fix our eyes on him above and beyond, right? Matthew 6, Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He has to be first in a long line of pursuits in your life. But in a very different way, I think about a, a wind chime, right? At our house, we've got this wind chime. When my mom passed away, uh, she had a wind chime at her place, and uh, I snagged it. I took it to our house. It's one of those, we, we hung it on a corner of our house outside, and um, it's, it's one of those, we probably honestly got it from Gatlinburg or Helen when I was a kid somewhere because we used to go there all the time. It's one of those metal wind chimes, right? You know, you've seen them. They've got the long pipes, different lengths, and in the middle there's some kind of a clacker. I'm sure there's a wind chime term for that. I don't know what it is. So I'm just going to say clacker. So in the middle, there's this, uh, this, this sort of a clacker in the middle, and what happens is that middle piece, that component, touches each one of those pipes, and when it touches a different pipe, it emits a different sound, right? That's what makes the sound of a wind chime so engaging. It's this beautiful music that comes out of it. In a lot of ways, Jesus and his role in our lives is a lot like that center piece. Yes, he's first, Matthew 6, but he also has a desire and his only rightful place in your life and in my life is that he be in the very center. And those pipes are the other elements of your life. There's the finance pipe. There's the, there, there's the uh, recreation pipe. And there's what I do on my weekends pipe. And there's the what happens when nobody's looking pipe. And there's my family pipe. And there's the, there's the, you know, the work pipe and career. And all these different components of our lives. And there's Jesus in the very center. And the design is not that, that, <clears throat> that he is just another separate pipe that gets fit in there. He's in the very middle and he should touch all of them. All the time, and when you're at work, it, th those coworkers get to see what Jesus looks like when Jesus goes to work, right? Because you're all in. You're not just all in on Sunday from 9 to 11.30 when you're here on this property. You're all in. When you punch the clock, you're all in. And here's Jesus coming to work with me, and they're going to see what he looks like. And when you're, when you're on the ball field or when you cash a check or when you spend your money, whatever you do in family or private life, it's all in, what happens is when, when he's not that center component touching all those areas of our lives consistently, what happens is many times, sadly, in churches just like this, he's not the center. He's another one of those pipes that we just sort of, every now and then we're in the center, and every now and then we reach out and touch him. <laughs> but not at the same time that we're engaged with any of those other areas of life. Psalm 127 paints a whole different picture. It says, unless the Lord builds your house, unless the Lord guards your city, unless the Lord is the center of your life, <laughs> it's going to be in vain. It's amazing how much this particular psalm written by Solomon reflects the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it's not a surprise that Solomon wrote this particular Psalm. Verse 2, he adds to that picture. There are two themes in verse 1, a house and a city. Verse 2, it kind of rolls in a different theme. We could call this theme just making a living, right? A career, whatever you want to call it. He says in verse 2, it's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. When he says even in his sleep, that word his is lowercase. Um, it doesn't mean that God sleeps. God doesn't sleep. God's God. He doesn't need rest. <laughs> he rested on the seventh day to set us a pattern, but it wasn't because he was tired. 
that even while you and I are asleep, when you slept last night, you could easily have woken up this morning and the first thing that you said when your eyes busted open, the first thing you could have rightly prayed would have been, Lord, thank you for waking me up, right? This is a deep thought, but you didn't wake yourself up. (laughs) I didn't wake myself up. In a sense, yes, it may have been my iPhone, but in a very real sense, God sustained me through the night. Even in my sleep, he provided for me. He raised my chest and lowered my chest through these th- this thing called breathing. He gave me the breaths that I needed. He kept my body functioning the way that it needed so that through the night when I was not in any control whatsoever, I was out of it because I stayed up too late watching the Braves, right? Even in my sleep, God was there taking care of me. And when I woke up, it was because he woke me up. And when you go to sleep tonight, it's because he's going to give you the peace that's necessary for you to rest. And when he wakes you up tomorrow, it's only going to be by him. It's fruitless for us to think that we, by our hard efforts, working 50, 60, 80, 90 hours a week, and we're grinding and we're burning the candle at both ends, and we begin to think, here I am working this living, and I'm really building a name for myself, and I'm really climbing up the ladder, and I'm going to have all kinds of good stuff, aren't I? No, that is fruitless and in vain unless God is the one driving that boat. That's what the psalmist is saying here in Psalm chapter 127. It's this amazing picture of what it looks like to be all in. What, it, what, is it, what does it mean? It means we're surrendered to him. It means we're surrendered to his way. It doesn't mean that we somehow keep count of our rights versus our wrongs and our rights outweigh our wrongs. No, it means that constantly, even though we've got a long way to go, and even though we're not perfect in the way we live our lives, and even though we know we're going to stumble, we pick ourselves back up and we say, you know what? I want to get back on that path to being like Jesus. Lord, be in the center, be in, be in control. This is your life, not mine. And, and I want your way and your will and your work to be done through me. That's what it's like to be all in. And it's ironic. I didn't, I didn't schedule this. Today, I'm not smart enough to do that, but it is ironic that, that Matthew and Rachel and their family are here with us today when we're talking about Psalm 127, what it looks like to be all in. You leave the comforts and the confines and family and the relationships and all of the securities of living here in this country or in your place where you were born or where you were raised and to just ultimately leave all of that and to go literally as far around the world as you can go in answer to a call. You don't do that unless you're all in. doesn't mean that God's only calling us to international missions. doesn't mean that at all. There are needs right here in your neighborhood that are equally, hey, listen, hell is hell. It doesn't matter if you get there from Papua New Guinea or from Wilmington Island. I mean, lost is lost. Separated from God is separated from God. Undone is undone. It doesn't matter what language sits behind it, okay? So I'm not saying that it's most important if you serve your life on a foreign mission field. I'm not saying that at all. But when God calls there, the only rightful thing to do is to go, just like he said. Abraham was all in, right? Genesis chapter 12. That's a hinge passage, by the way, in the whole entire Bible is Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, he had a different name then. He was Abram. God would give him a longer name a little bit later. But there God comes to Abraham, and and he tells him, Abraham, it's time for you to go. I mean, you got to get up, and you got to go. Where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there, right? Abraham didn't even know where he was going, and he answered, and he pulled up his tent pegs, and he packed up his tent, and he gathered all his stuff and all of his people, and off he goes to a land. He didn't even know where he was going. And he makes it to the Hebrews chapter 11 Faith Hall of Fame. Why? Because he was all in. 
Joshua was all in. Whenever he comes to the edge of the promised land, Moses had got them that far, wasn't allowed to lead them in. Joshua was the one who ultimately would lead them across the Jordan River into the promised land. Why was Joshua able to do what even Moses wasn't able to do? Because Joshua was all in. You don't cross that land, you don't cross that river, lead two million people into the promised land and conquer the nations that were necessary to do it unless you were all in. David was all in, right? David, probably a teenager, very possibly, straight out of the field, steps up and he t- to visit the Israelite people, part of his own family, there on the battlefield, shaking in their boots because this almost 10-foot giant, tall giant named Goliath is trash-talking them and their God. And David, with a sling and five little rocks, he only needed one, slays the giant, brings victory to the whole entire nation. You still read about him today, 3,000 years later. Why? Because he was all in. Esther, towards the close of Old Testament history, God's people on the fringe of being destroyed. The plan for the Messiah who would come from the Jewish lineage, perhaps facing its greatest threat, and Esther stands before the king at the risk of her life. And as a result of her boldness, the people of Israel are spared. And they still celebrate it to this day because she was all in. The disciples, hey, to a large degree, it's not a stretch to say that you and I are believers today because of their faithfulness to live out the gospel message. It made it to us across an ocean to another continent centuries later because those 11 men who could have let it die with them chose to be all in and it spread as a result and of course Jesus right the ultimate all in who experienced what he didn't deserve and experienced what he didn't have to on the cross just so that we could have an opportunity to know God all in all in is risky I'm going to warn you all in is frightening. <laughs> I remember when God called me to seminary, I was single. And uh, I'd already done the college thing. Got my 2.5, got out of there. <laughs> I didn't want to go back to class. I didn't want to do what was necessary for that. I'd been working in church for about six years. Three of that part-time. And I knew what God was calling me to do. And... Uh, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave my family, right? Single, my parents were getting older, and I thought in my heart when I left, it's like, you know what? For all I knew, I was gone. It was Abraham. I'm not coming back. And it was one of those all-in moments for me and how ironic that God would bring me right back here. I didn't expect that. Put me here in this church 15 minutes from where my mom would live, where I was raised, and they would both end up joining here before God would call them home. You've probably had all-in moments like that. It's that moment where the line is drawn in the sand and you have to decide, am I going to just play games? (laughs) Am I just going to dabble? Or am I in this thing for the long haul? And when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, listen, the reason that he can place such a high call on our lives for us to also be all in is because he did nothing less than that himself for us. Psalm 127 shifts gears here, and I'm just about done. In verse 3 through the end, Solomon starts talking about family. 
He says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. You know, it seems a little bit out of place almost in Psalm 127 until you realize one of the issues that got Israel into deep water to begin with in their history was that they had been taught the things of God, but as Judges, I think it's Judges 2 tells us, they did not pass that truth on to the next generation, and Israel began to do not just a slow fade, but a steep fall. They didn't pass it back. And I think what Psalm 127 is telling us here is that we have to determine in our own lives who's going to build our house, who's going to guard our city, who's the center of our life. He's talking about life here. And once we establish that, if we're truly all in in our relationship with God through Jesus, are we willing then to look back in this context to our own children? Maybe it's grandchildren. Maybe it's nieces and nephews. Maybe it's to students if you're a teacher. Maybe it's to other kids that you could influence in your church or your community, whatever it may be. Are we willing to look back and to help bring them along with us as we live our lives all in with the person of Christ. He's saying that ultimately we have an obligation to do that. And I think when you put all of, this, all of these five verses together, to me, it can be summarized with just a simple point that I hope you'll jot down. And the point is this, that being all in is a choice that you make, right? Nobody can make that choice for you. I, as your pastor, can't choose for you to be all in. You, as a congregation, as my church family, can't make a choice for me to be all in. I have to choose that for myself. You have to choose that for yourself. And I'm going to say, we're not going to know probably what's going to unfold along the way. We can't say, God, can you give me a sneak peek? Can you just give me maybe a table of contents of what's going to come if I go all in? Can you give me maybe just a little trailer so that I can take a look, a little three-minute peek at what my life's going to be like if I go all in? We don't get that. It's like we sign the check and say, God, here it is, fill it in. But if we don't. Not only is that not even reflective of what salvation is in the first place, but also we miss, we miss the joy of seeing God use our lives <laughs> in ways that only he can. And we miss, I think, the full experience of what our salvation is supposed to be. A Christian who says, Jesus promised me that I would have life and have it more abundantly, John 10.10. 10. Why am I not having it? Sometimes it's because we've got one foot in this world and one foot in his and we're missing it. One of Jesus' last words that we would see in Scripture comes all the way back in the book of Revelation chapter 3, and I close with this passage. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. He's speaking to a church in Laodicea. He says to this church in Revelation 3, verse 15. He says, I know your deeds, he says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not a reference that they would lose their salvation. He says, because you say I'm rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Remember, folks, he is speaking to a church here. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to a church, a church that says we've got it all together. We don't really have much need of you. We've got this all figured out. We can handle it. We'll call you God if we need you. 
right? We're going to dabble with you in one sense, but we're also going to kind of do our own thing in our own way, on our own time in another sense. His response would be, verse 18, I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, an eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In other words, you don't even know how much you're missing because you're not all in. You are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. If you would just be all in, you would find that I will give you everything you need in your life. And he closes by saying, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. He loves us too much to leave us there. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and we'll dine with him and he with me. What an amazing picture that today, maybe all over this room, the Savior who saved you, Christian, is knocking. And he's not calling you to be saved all over again because you've genuinely given your life to him. What he's calling you to is to be all in. Lord, this life is not mine. Do with it whatever you want. And there may be some in this room as well and watching online who've never began a relationship with God in the first place. And you're wondering, what does that relationship look like? I know I probably need to give some offering and I need to join a church and I need to do a bunch of good deeds, more than my bad stuff. That's what a relationship looks like. No, none of that. What he's looking for is surrender. All in. Jesus, I've sinned and I'm sick of it. Today I admit it and I surrender. Save me and use me. Amen. It's that prayer, or one like it, that starts that relationship with God. And it's that prayer that's as, effect, as effective in Papua New Guinea, in Cuba, in the Philippines, as it is here, even for you. Let's pray. Lord, these psalms are so powerful, incredibly powerful. And Lord, thank you for the inspiration that you put on the lives of those who wrote these 150 Psalms that we can still read today. Thank you that you are able to convey to us, Lord, truth in ways that's so easy to understand that if anyone has ever set out to build a house, you can't do it unless it's pretty much the priority for those months ahead. If anyone's gonna join the military and guard a city, they can't be half in or half out because they'll be all dead. Lord, their life is at stake. And Lord, in the same way, we can't be one foot in with you and one foot in the world or in our own agenda. Lord, we got to be all in. Lord, that's what salvation is in the first place. It's surrender. It's being in a place where we're sick of our sin. We're tired of it. We don't want it to, to characterize us anymore. And we confess it to you and we put it away the best we can. And we just surrender it all to you. We trust you alone, Jesus. But as believers, Lord, we have a way we have a way of sometimes stepping back out of that circle, stepping to where we're a little more compromised, where we're a little more kind of sharing, sharing the surrender. It's partly to our own way and partly to yours. Lord, today, may we be found just simply all in with you. May we as a church, as it relates to knowing you, as it relates to serving other people, as it relates to sharing the message of the gospel, serving our community, making disciples, Lord, may we be all in. Lord, there is so much at stake. And God, we miss so much.
when we're not. And so, Lord, help us to put this to life, Lord, today, tomorrow, as we go to work and the rest of the things we do. Lord, help us to live out the truth of this simple five-verse psalm. And, Lord, when people recognize that our lives are different, <laughs> Lord, may you be the only one who gets the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.